0: Hello and welcome to the 1740 podcast. We've got a really special, really wonderful guest on today. I'm Alexander Waugh, chairman of the De Vere Society, and I'm with, as always, Maudy Lowe. And we're going to be talking to Elizabeth Winkler. I don't think uh, there, there can be many people in the Oxfordian world who have not now heard of Elizabeth Winkler, because she's written a very startling book called Shakespeare as a Woman and Other Heresies published by Simon and Schuster. It's witty, it's entertaining, it's scholarly, but not at all Don-like or dry. Uh, It's full of good narrative stories, anecdotes, and she goes around uh, the world interviewing people about the Shakespeare authorship question and finds that certain people who believe that certain and other people wrote these plays talk to her in one way and other people who think that somebody else wrote the plays talk to her in another way. And you'll probably be able to guess which ones are the most forthcoming and which the, the most friendly and which the most scholarly and which the most difficult. Anyway, that's what the book's about. I will be recommending it again during the course of this conversation, but I'll just at the very, very off say it is a fantastically enjoyable book. And yeah, I really, really recommend it to anyone even vaguely interested in the history of that period, let alone the fascinating subject of Shakespeare authorship. So welcome. Elizabeth uh, Winkler. I, just before I, I, I let you in, I think I better admit um, to us, well, I won't call it a conflict of interest. I don't know what we can really call it, but Elizabeth came here when she was writing the book and she did write a whole chapter on me, and we will talk a little bit about that chapter. Uh, but welcome, Elizabeth. It's lovely to have you here.
1: Hi. Hi. It's so fun to be here and to be chatting with you again. And uh, yes, that's right. There's a whole chapter with Alexander in the book called Purple Robes Disdained, in which we discuss the Oxfordian theory. So it's good to be good to be chatting with you again.
0: Yes, thank you very much. Now, Those who are listening probably don't know that disdained means stained. So it's nice to have a chapter about purple robes with stains on them named after me, but uh, you have to read it to understand why it's called that. Um, So, Elizabeth, um, I I know you've done quite a circuit of of interviews um, with different people, but maybe even so. Uh, just a very, very brief description, in your words, uh, of of your book and the kind of effect that it's been having, and then we'll go over to Maudie to find out more.
1: Yeah, the book is partly a work of literary history, the history of the authorship question, which is really sort of the history of how beliefs developed about Shakespeare from the Renaissance to today, Um, and it's also a a work of journalism. Um, I'm a journalist, I write for The New Yorker and The Wall Street Journal and other publications, and I realised as I was reading about the history of this topic and thinking about how I wanted to write about it that I needed to go interview the people currently involved in researching this, um, both the scholars on the Orthodox side, the the Stratfordians as they're known, people like sort of Stanley Wells, um, Stephen Greenblatt, Marjorie Garber, those, those very famous prominent Shakespeare scholars are in the book. Um, and then, but then I also wanted to talk to the heretics the scoundrels on the other side, um, Roger Stripmatter, Alexander Wall, Ross Barber, um, a famous actor like uh, Mar- Sir Mark Rylance. Um, th- the idea was to bring this weird and wonderful world of Shakespeare authorship to life by um, bringing the reader along to meet the very colorful cast of characters. You know, because there are such wonderful personalities, I think, involved in in the discussion, and I realized so much of so much of our understanding of Shakespeare. Everyone sort of brings their own lens, their own view, their own personal relationship to Shakespeare into Mm -hmm. their understanding of who the author was. So, to understand Stanley Wells's view of Shakespeare, I needed to meet with Stanley Wells and talk to him and understand him, and and same with you or Roger. Um, I wanted to really understand sort of that personal you know, history each person has with Shakespeare.
2: The bravery you've shown in writing this book and your thorough investigation has been nothing short of inspirational. And I wanted to run through some of the wild and bizarre inaccuracies that have been thrown your way. We've had weirdly, hoary fallacy, denialist, misconception, conspiracy, anti-democratic, irrational, and of course, egregious Holocaust denier, now some time has passed, what do you make of these outlandish claims? And do you think this is, this is an, well, do you think this overreaction says an awful lot? I think they're very funny. They're <laughs> entirely predictable um, and extremely telling.
1: It is moralizing language. Listen to, you know, those words are trying to make the authorship question into a moral problem. And this is what the whole book is about in the first place. How Doubting Shakespeare Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. That's my subtitle. The whole idea behind the book, I I realized after I wrote the Atlantic article in 2019, you know, I had these same reactions to it. And I realized that they were instead of the authorship question should be a literary historical problem. That's it, a literary historical question about the authorship of 400-year-old plays. But the reactions to it treat it like a moral problem, you know, comparing it to Holocaust denial. Even this term denialist, you know, is very pejorative. There were were some other, you know, uh, terms thrown out, one called the book pernicious, another uh, insidious. You know, these are this is hysterical language, absolute hysteria around this topic. So the the whole impetus behind the book was to try to understand how doubting Shakespeare became a moral problem. Why is it unethical? And And I realized as I dug through the whole history of it, that it's tied to, you know, religious changes over the centuries, it's tied to imperialism, it's tied to British national identity, and the ways in which Shakespeare over the centuries, over especially over the 18th and 19th centuries, was set up as a god, as 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 really a national um, idol, and Stratford upon Avon as an English Bethlehem, and so to question Shakespeare has become heresy because it's like questioning, you know, the divinity of Christ or something. So all the all those terms, I mean, it's it's frustrating on the one hand to hear that language come out because it's as though they have not even read my book, you know.
0: Well, they they won't have done. They won't have done. I I mean,
1: some of them did, but they're not. You know, based on the reviews, they've clearly read it a bit, but they haven't really absorbed it. It's like they haven't understood it. They haven't. They haven't. They've blocked their ears to everything I've written, all the research I. You know, so on that. But
0: I mean, in in fairness, Elizabeth, you you really took them on. I mean, you made. Uh, reviewing your book very very difficult for them because because what you point out in the book is that people on one side of the argument and that actually basically means people supporting Williams of Stratford as being the author of these plays um, is uh, in, in, incredibly intransigent and won't actually engage with the argument and wants to throw brickbats at anybody who gives quite interesting evidence to show that it may be a pseudonym. Now, by doing that, the reviewer who is intransigent, who is sitting there, who is a Stratfordian, is thinking, how the hell am I going to review this book? Because what I want to do is what I normally do, which is throw the brickbats and tell them she's an idiot and say she's a tinfoil hat policy denial, whatever it's called. The and so th- so you really box them in. And I actually, I noticed from some of those reviewers that they were acutely aware of that problem. I think there was one who said, how am I to, how am I to review this now?
1: Yes. Yeah, I noticed that too as well. Yeah, it's funny. They begin, a few of them try to tackle the problem by noting the difficulty of reviewing the book. And um, in fact, they shouldn't have been allowed to review the book, these people, because fundamentally the book is about the phenomenon of belief, really. It's about the believers. Yes, I interview, of course, the heretics and talk about the different theories as to who else, you know, might have been using the name Shakespeare, but really the book is about this phenomenon of belief. And so... When these newspaper editors say, oh, book on Shakespeare, I'm just going to give it to a Shakespeare scholar to review, you know, they're giving it to the believers. And of course, the believers are just going to come in and shut, you know, so the whole it's all sort of a silly mess. Um, And the the fair handed and the sharpest reviews have come from people, you know, who um, are not Shakespeare professors, who are seeing the book from a different lens and don't have, um, you know, don't have a stake in the battle. Yes, yes.
0: And now Professor Jonathan Bate, who actually is something of a friend of mine, um, he came a bit unstuck on trying to review your book and a, a bit of a controversy ensued uh, about gondolas. Can you can you tell us something about that?
1: Yes, poor old Professor Bate has developed a bit of a gondola complex, unfortunately. <laughs> um, he, um, he tried to argue, it, first in an article in The Telegraph, that... Um, well, Shakespeare clearly doesn't know Venice very well because he doesn't mention canals in Venice. Uh, and thus Shakespeare clearly never went to Italy. This is very silly. There've been numerous Italian scholars who've written whole books on Shakespeare's knowledge of Italy and of Venice. And you know, I'm, if you just look at the comments to the Telegraph article, there's another Shakespeare professor who comes in and says, hang on, Shakespeare men- mentions gondolas and gondoliers in the plays. What do you think gondolas travel on Professor Bate, are they they being dragged across the cobblestones of St. Mark's? I don't think so. So, you know, this is very silly. This is a professor who's supposedly dedicated his whole life to studying Shakespeare's works and to making very silly mistakes like this in his attempt to maintain this notion that Shakespeare never left England. So, you know, I pointed that out in a response um, in the Telegraph, letter to the editor. Uh, But Bate, he's continuing with it. Then he wrote another article for The Times, um, attempt, attempting to argue again that Shakespeare has no knowledge of Italy, but what's so, it's its very silly and funny on the one hand, if you know how, how ridiculous it is. It's infuriating on the other hand, because he's set up as an expert, right? The Times yeah. said, our expert separates the fact from the fiction. Um, you know, implying that I was perpetuating...
0: Uh, Absolutely outrageous.
1: False, false facts or whatever oh, in my book. When in fact, it's Professor Bate who's perpetuating, um, perpetuating fictions here. And, you know, really, uh, it really calls into question his ability to claim the term expert on this subject. He really is not, cannot claim and that.
2: You are definitely an expert. And I saw on your Instagram earlier that you've spent some time in Italy recently. Um, was it Venice that you went to? Did you retrace any of Edward de Vere's steps?
1: I have wanted to write an article on Shakespeare in Italy to bring that incredible research done by scholars to mainstream readers. I, I spend a little bit of time on it in the book, but, you know, it's such a huge subject that uh, there's so much more to be said about it. And I, what I think is really, yes, yeah, so I did go to Italy. I was in Venice. I went to... Um, I went to uh, Villa Foscari, which is a villa outside of Venice, which has been identified by the Italian scholar, Noemi Magri as as Portia's house, as the house oh, of, in the yeah. Merchant of Venice, um, where, where Shakespeare sets, um, you know, the whole, the suitors coming to, to, you know, win Portia's hand. And it's a a stunning, uh, absolutely breathtaking villa. The frescoes there are incredible. And there's actually a port, uh, a fresco on one of the walls of the Roman Portia, Brutus's wife, which is really interesting because scholars actually don't know why Shakespeare chose that name, Portia, for the play. And you can, you know, there's perhaps a possibility that the author saw that that fresco there and and used it for the character. Anyway, it's a really-
0: Yes. Amazing- and, you, and you know, don't you, I know you don't um, stick your colors to the mask very strongly about candidate support, but you are I'm sure aware that Edward de Vere came down from Paris with recommendations from Henry III and Henry III has been staying in that very house just before I think the likelihood that that Edward de Vere passed through that house or went into it is, is very high indeed. He, he would have gone up the Brenta as well to, to, to um, Padua from Venice.
1: Yeah, it's really incredible standing on the porch there and you see that you can literally see the, the Brenta River right there, you know, from the from the front steps of the house. And um, if you know the play, it, it it's awfully compelling. <laughs> yes, so, yes. And I want to write about that. But part of what I want to dig into, which which is so hilarious, is the back and forth that Shakespeare scholars have done on this subject, because early scholars said, oh, clearly Shakespeare went to Italy, obviously, look at his knowledge of Italy. Then, you know, when they couldn't find evidence that Shakespeare of Stratford ever left England, they started walking that back and saying it's all, you know, errors and mistakes and, and this kind of thing. So there's a whole history of flip flopping on this subject. And of course, Professor Gate is just the latest iteration of that. And I think sort of exposing it's actually quite funny the way they keep trying to cover up their, you know, their sloppiness. Um,
2: and so partially
1: yeah. I want to do it just to sort of expose the silliness of the traditional
2: scholars on this front. Even though Alexander is sat next to me, who was the most enjoyable or memorable interview, and who was the most challenging to?
0: Well, me obviously.
2: <laughs> well, obviously, Alexander. answer <laughs> well, on <to> that <laughs> one. <laughs> no, but really, I've heard from multiple
1: readers um, saying that they were they've been laughing out loud reading the chapter with Alexander, and they've written to me asking for more quotes from him, you know, if if I, of course I had to cut a lot, I couldn't include anything, everything, you know, what I had to cut from the book and they wouldn't, you know, you know, so I think um, Alexander was a big hit because he has such a memorable, witty, funny way of approaching the whole subject. Um, It was, it was a lot of fun. We had a good time, didn't we?
0: We had a lovely time. And, but I, I thought that all of your, um, uh, chapters displayed great wit and and enjoyment and a bit of a bit of teasing. I think of the um, of the subjects. I think you described me as a, I, I found very funny as a uh, an electrocuted scientist. That was on account I think of my hair flying up in the air. <laughs> I obviously. was trying to
1: create the visual for readers and also a mischievous puck because you there's a sort of a mischievous quality to the way you poke fun at the scholars and I think that's very good. You know, it does away with. A- a lot of the there's a lot of acrimony and deep anger and you know which is kind of goofy on us you know why do people get so angry about this you know and you you have a wonderful way of deflating it by just sort of um making fun of the whole thing
0: well i i I mean i come from quite a philosophical angle on this and you know there are those within the oxfordian movement whose sole purpose as far as i can see is to convert the, what I consider to be a rather small number, be they influential or not, they are a very, very small number of Shakespearean scholars sitting talking to themselves in a silly language in universities. And, and I realized when I entered this game that actually there's a big world around there of intelligent, interesting, bourgeois, humorous, clever people who want to read these kind of books, who are interested in this subject, and and they don't all fall over backwards to anything a professor says. So they are quite funny, these people, as you as you say. And I think this comes across in your book brilliantly. And I'd love to be the person who inspired you into thinking they were funny. <laughs> they, exactly. they, they certainly come across as hysterical. I
1: did take some, did take some inspiration for that from you. Um, just, you know, yes, I did actually, yeah.
0: I mean you you must have found this a lot of times and why they get so cross and so intransigent is because ultimately they do not want to enter the debate. Uh they they just want us to shut up and go away. Now you could say, well, thank you, Jonathan Bate. Thank you, um Stanley Wells, because they did give you an interview, albeit very reluctantly. Well, no, actually Jonathan didn't, did he? Um Stanley Wells did, but reluctantly, and tried to cancel on you at the last minute, but you got him to to, to change his mind. Um, and I've done countless debates and things uh, where it's been almost impossible to find a Stratfordian to stand up against me um, because they know they don't know their stuff very well. And they they look, you know, even with Jonathan Bate, who's a top professor of Shakespeare, I did a debate with him. I could see that he looked so blank on many, many important pieces of information. And I think you got this a bit from Stanley Wells, didn't you? You know, there's early information that all of the anti-Strat, so-called anti-Stratfordians or the Oxfordians, they all know it. And if they say it, uh, for instance, there was a man in 1628, wasn't there, who, who took, names a lot of writers and says, oh, yes, and what about that one who takes a name from Shaking and Spear? That's a problem. And there are lots and lots of these early early things. And you, and you confront these Stratfordians, and they don't know them, they've never heard them, they don't know what you're talking about. And they're the ones who look stupid, but then they, they're desperate to make us look stupid or quack. And it doesn't matter. We are now in the majority, we are the intelligent readers everything changed i think since the internet came along we could all start looking this up and for ourselves and we didn't have to be a professor to handle a very precious book of which there's only one copy and one library in the world but i think i think your contribution is really really wonderful elizabeth because um it it, it's unlocked it's unlocked and is unlocking continue to unlocking many doors for the intelligent and they, ultimately, this this battle will be won. And when I say battle, I'm not even, as an Oxfordian, saying it will be proved that it's Earl of Oxford. But the battle will be won, that, and it is being won, that this is a sensible, intelligent subject to discuss and a very, very interesting one, and that William Shakespeare is clearly a pseudonym. Sorry.
1: Yeah, it will be interesting to see how it evolves. I do think you're right that the internet has radically changed the debate and the access to information that people can have and... You know, yes, yeah, Stanley Wells, every time I presented him with a piece of evidence, you know, suggesting Sudan and misauthorship, you know, all he could say was, I don't know. I don't have a theory about that. Yeah. So it was I think it was very embarrassing for him. And he's he's been sort of angrily tweeting about me occasionally on Twitter. But, you know, the responses to the book, all the the, the things that you read out, you, they're essentially right. They're trying to keep people from reading the book. So that's um that's what they're really afraid of i guess they they have managed to you know this is arcane material most of the public doesn't know about uh, you know obscure renaissance allusions to shakespeare and so that's how they've sort of been able to maintain this notion that it's all conspiracy theory but once that information is accessible through the internet through books like mine or or others you know then they do really start to lose their hold on the subject don't they
2: there's a lot more people that are discovering this now for the first time. Um, and it's a huge whodunit. Well, not for us, obviously, because we know who did it, but um, it either. must be. Elizabeth's really... not telling. No. <laughs> are we ever going to get it out of you, Elizabeth?
1: <laughs> well, look, I, you know, it was a decision I made when I was thinking about how to write the book. I thought. I'm not going to write another book that just says Amelia Bussano was Shakespeare or Oxford was Shakespeare or Bacon was Shakespeare, because that's not new or interesting. People have written those books. There's lots of those books out there you can read. So why would I write another one like that? And I, and I thought the thing to do was to really pull back the curtain on sort of the whole history of the subject and the taboo around it and contribute what I could as a journalist through the interviews. And I thought if I just argued for one candidate, then the whole all, all the reactions to the book would sort of become about that. And that's not what I wanted it to be about, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think you played it very well. And actually not the first, the, 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 I don't know, I'm sure you did because you researched so thoroughly. You came across a, a writer called George Greenwood, who in uh, 1908, and he, he again, I mean, he. I, I don't like the term sat on the fence because it in, implies a sort of intellectual idleness, but he didn't declare, let's say, um like you did and actually one thing i did notice i don't know if you picked up on this elizabeth that someone reviewed your book who was obviously a stratfordian and therefore was against the book but he said the best interview you gave in it was with mark rylance and mark was very interesting now now mark um he's 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 definitely of the view that shakespeare's a pseudonym but he, he he too plays it carefully he wants to embrace all opinions he's very very open Um, he may have slight Baconian leanings but he doesn't want to push those too hard but my point in raising this is that reviewer was clearly taking a step forward when it came to your review with Mark Rylance whereas when it was your interview with me or with anyone else he was probably going to stick his fingers in his ears so so
1: you know it was actually Jonathan Bate who it was
0: Jonathan was it yeah
1: Telegraph and you know I, you, Jonathan, is, I think he's sucking up a little bit, right, to Sir Mark Rylance, great Shakespeare actor. He doesn't want to offend him. Um, but I, but it's true that Mark's approach to the question is, um, it, it's so beautiful, and it's so open-minded, and it's so insightful that it's really hard to take issue with it, you know. his he, he calls it sort of a beautiful question, the way the mystery, the question of God is a beautiful question. He talks about the different windows onto the plays that he sees through the through different candidates and how all of that has shaped his own performance of Shakespeare. So, um, you know, it's really hard to criticise him, I think.
0: Oh, well, well, he's, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. And actually he said to me the other day, he said, I'm going to get a bit tougher now. Alexander, you'll be very pleased with me. I'm going to toughen up and start boxing people in the face." And I said, actually, <laughs> I said, no, 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 don't, don't do that because it's funny enough. I think what you're doing, although I would he's never really- do it that way. I think oh, it's, very
1: you know, he said the same thing yeah. to me now. he now he, he, he feels, I don't know, enlivened to, I think he's frustrated. He's sick of being, you know, he has been very badly treated by, um, you know, some papers and journalists and scholars you know yeah who, well Stan, Stanley Wells
0: lost his temper with him didn't he? calling
1: him mad and bonkers and all you know it's, mm. it's it's awful you know so I think he's taken a lot of abuse and I think he's a little sick of it rightly so
0: but and I think Stanley Wells lost his temper with him and funny enough I, I wrote to Stanley Wells at one point and said would you like to debate with me about something he said I can't because I'll lose my temper and I thought that was quite quite nice and cool of him actually
2: I always ask what advice you would give to anyone starting out on their authorship journey. And from your past experience, would you have any words of encouragement for those who may feel pressured by the negativity you've suffered? Oh, well. Words of know. encouragement. Words of encouragement. <laughs> you
1: no, know, I mean, wasn't it wasn't an advisable career move on my part to write about this subject? Most people would probably say, no, Elizabeth, what on earth are you doing? This was a crazy crazy thing to tackle but you can make decisions based on what is going to look good for your career to the people who you think you need to impress or you can decide as a writer that you're going to write about what you think is interesting and true and worthy uh, you you know worth reading about and I I just thought this was an interesting this is a fascinating subject you know and so Mm, I just decided I was going to live my career and make my decisions um, on the latter model and not the former. Um, Well, look, if
0: it's any encouragement, I come from a family of quite well-known famous writers and they always courted controversy and they did jolly well by it. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, just towing the party line is is you end up uh, like a a sort of, well, I don't want to be rude, but Jonathan Bates, Stanley Wells, taking a controversial line, you become much more interesting ultimately to the media and certainly to the general public. So you've taken the right decision definitely there and I think you should I think you should really make it your career Mm. not not necessarily Shakespeare but the next book you should write should also be a very controversial subject and just go for it
1: yeah you know I think I'm bored by something that's that everyone's pleased by if you write a book that oh everyone just sort of politely claps and you know it's kind of boring so
0: especially a book about a controversy I mean for heaven's sake (laughs) (laughs) you know it's a book about two violently opposed sides um Right, and it's the
1: controversy itself that makes it interesting, the fact that people get so emotional about it, and that it's been this, you know, fierce feud for so long, and, and it is evolving, people think, oh, it's been around for so long, you know, there's no solution, but there is fascinating new research being done by you and others, and that's also part of what I wanted to highlight, you know, the authorship question is not currently the same thing that it was when ogborn wrote his book in 1984 or you know it's it it keeps changing and evolving and there's new information and that's also what i wanted to bring in
0: yeah and i and i really feel they're softening at the edges too uh there's a very good there's a very good recent scholarly book has come out on uh on uh, renaissance men going to italy uh, lots of different essays, and they have a whole chapter on Edward De Vere in there. And at the end, they say, but without any bitterness, any rankness, any, you know, Edward, Edward De Vere is considered by many to have been the author of Shakespeare. And this is a totally oh. scholarly mm-hmm. book. Edited oh, by Michael oh, Brennan.
1: you send that to me. I need, I, had, I didn't know about that. That's really interesting. Well, oh, one, oh, not I, only
0: that, he's dug out some bits of letters that weren't even in the famous Nelson, Monstrous adversary, um, uh, that proves that um, Edward de Vere went to Italy in, in, in to learn more about literature. Very interesting.
1: Amazing. Okay, well, I need to read that. You know, I've been in, Roger Stripmatter has an article coming out in Critical Survey, a scholarly journal this fall, that looks at the famous Francis Mears' um, uh, Paladis Tamiya discussion of Shakespeare and, of, and well you know this Alexander I, shows that um, by Shakespeare Mears is, is identifying Shakespeare as Oxford anyway that's hugely controversial thing of course but it's been accepted by a scholarly journal uh, and will be published this fall so for for Strip Matter to be publishing that um, that's 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 pretty huge I think that's so that's kind of yeah I, I, yeah a landmark well, I've,
0: about- I've 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 got a whole piece in, um, but everyone's tries to sneer at the journal, which is called the Journal of Scientific Exploration, published published out of uh, some Californian university. Which one is it? You probably know. Anyway, they're doing a whole Oxfordian uh, issue. It's coming out in August. It's about to come out.
1: Okay, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, it's interesting to see the other fields outside of English literature becoming interested in the subject and publishing on it. And then um I mean I was just really fascinated that strip matter got this article accepted by an English literature journal that is unheard of I
0: know, it's, I know. A,
1: it's a slightly sort of I think you know maybe more postmodern experimental journal but it's it's edited by a Shakespeare scholar Graham holderness and um you know that's a pretty I, I mean the Stratfordians are just going to be furious aren't they
0: well they, they will probably try and stop it and and there were stories about um an Italian journal do you remember this and uh who's the the great guy out of uh, Georgetown Wargaman, Dr mm. Wargaman? he he published uh, he, they accepted it for publication and then uh Gary whatever he's called came in and stopped it and there was a huge there, uh, there was a huge controversy about that he pulled it after the magazine had accepted it when I think he came in as editor yeah so that's what they do.
1: There are a lot of instances like that. So that's, that's what made it all the more remarkable to me that this
2: one was accepted. Have any new interesting opportunities arisen since the launch of your book? Oh, I mean, I've just been doing lots of book events and
1: talks and podcasts and interviews and, you know, trying to share this, you know, this topic with people who are new to it or people who are, interested but deeply disconcerted by it you know all sorts of parties um interesting new opportunities I when well, you know I'm thinking about the next articles I want to write and thinking about you know what my next book project will be but that's that's all sort of still in the works
0: well I know what you're going to do is going to be brilliant because I don't want to embarrass mm-hmm. you but you are a very brilliant person and I realized that when you came down here very quickly I was a little bit nervous because in 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 this world there are some quite nasty players around uh, who will pretend one thing and do something else but i i just felt you were a goodie from the out and when and when you came here i was bowled over by the amount of information you had in, seemed to in a, in a very short time have assimilated you seem to know every single argument of the ins and outs and this massive evidence and it was it was hugely impressive and then you're a very lovely personality as well and fun to be with and we had that great trip to wilton and things so i knew in the end it was go- it was going to go jolly well even though i knew you were going to annoy me by um telling everybody that i was directly descended from edward de Vere. but uh, oh, no, I, I i didn't I, I didn't as you know perfectly well i i was a bit shocked that you had discovered this off your own bat but you had discovered it and i was ever going to try and stop you but again, you know it's that the level of babyishness that the opposition has that they will want to say oh alexander war's only an oxfordian because he wants to puff up his own pedigree um but um i look you know, sticks and stones don't break my bones and being an oxfordian and there of course which means truly or truth i always always stick up for truth and it should be all truth should come out that's the thing that's why I'd never want to be a Freemason. So I think they, they hold their secrets. If We concentrate on them hard, hard enough, we can actually work out all their secrets anyway. So they're being slightly babyish and wasting their time. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't join, then I would have to keep the secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Shakespeare is one of the secrets held by certain Freemasons, I'm pretty sure.
2: Oh, I wanted to ask you this question. If you could bring back the true author of the works, what three questions would you ask? Oh, gosh. It's a curveball.
1: Yeah. The obvious one, of course, is, you know. Who are you? <laughs> why, why did you need to write under a pseudonym? You know, ha- why did that happen? Because some people, right, think the author chose a pseudonym. Some think the author was forced by sort of higher governmental powers to use. A, you know, so what, what was going on there? Why, mm-hmm. why did you need to use a pseudonym would be one. Another would be, what was your relationship with this man, Shaksper of Stratford?
0: Yeah, that's the the big question I'd love to ask.
1: Yeah, and Alexander and I discussed that a bit in the book. I think you call it the $6 million question, you know, because that is a big problem. I think if you, even for those who feel quite confident that the name is a pseudonym, um, the sort of the paper trail, if you will, the relationship with this person whose name the author seems to be using, you know there's no there's nothing sort of there nothing substantiating you know what that relationship looked like or how it happened so that would be a pretty crucial uh bit of the puzzle to be able to put together the last one um
0: are there any more i'd like to ask are there any more plays we don't know about
1: oh that's interesting yeah that's an interesting question that's I bet true. There are. you think yeah i hmm yeah,
0: and everything went in the first frame. We have these arguments don't we about Edward third. and is that is that one of his um and very I guess I want to players. know
1: I would want to know how the author felt about well I guess you can sort of read this in the sonnets right you can sort of find answers to this but just did the author um really care really hope you know that his or her identity would be recovered in time or were they completely indifferent to that and very happy to be anonymous forever I would love to know how he or she felt about that?
0: I mean, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that they, the, 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 the name was hidden for, for practical reasons, but they were obsessed with truth, all these people. They didn't want to lie. And so what they did is buried little seeds of truth here, there and everywhere. And us three, we wouldn't be having this conversation if they hadn't buried those little bits of truth because we found them and we've dug them all up. And the game, I think, was to preserve the truth uh, but to do it in such a way that it would obfuscate and take time, and only very learned and, and, and quick minded people who are really concentrating on it would get to the bottom of it. And I, I mean, one of the places I've been looking, which I think is almost the mo- most interesting at all, is, is, is on monuments, because monuments are placed in churches. And I don't believe that anyone wants to tell a lie on a monument in a church. So you have three extraordinary monuments, which are at the point of a perfect uh, equilateral triangle one at Wilton house uh that, where the elves of pembroke live one in stratford-upon-avon and one in westminster and they're all they're all playing games with us all of those monuments are playing games and they don't want to lie so we just know instinctively that the truth is in those monuments and what's written on them and the, what they're showing and i think we've kind of got to the bottom of it now haven't we but it's taken <laughs> it's yeah. taken several hundred years the
1: monuments are fascinating and especially that the one in stratford that you've decrypted about r- referencing um you know, judicious Beaumont, um, Spencer, and uh, who's the other one? Chaucer, and yeah. um, the way you connect that to Westminster, and that's one of the things you know I I wanted to ask Sir Stanley Wells about because it's you know one of the one of the most important sort of text documents in the authorship debate. You know, everyone they always point to you know look the monument in the church says Shakespeare's mm. birth Shakespeare of Stratford, and so when I asked him, you know, what do you think's going on there? Why does this why does this monument reference these, these particular figures? He, you know, he had no answer for that. Once again, yeah. and that's it's one of the places in which I feel like they, they really have left a vacuum and the post-Stratfordian or anti-Stratfordian scholars, if you will, are, are stepping in to fill that vacuum. If the, if the scholars can't answer these questions, then other people will.
0: I, I really, really can't emphasize enough to people who are listening to this, how excellent, the book is even though it teases me so I'm not just saying it because it's flattering about me but it it is nice but it 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 teases and it's witty and it's it's such a fun read and and it's that wonderful way of of presenting quite dense information but in a in a humorous uh light and journalistic way and that's what makes it so so wonderfully readable and i've been thinking from the very beginning that this book is going to be a major um uh wedge in the door of this this whole argument uh, holding it open
1: I um, think so, so I, absolutely I, think so. I can't tell you know absolutely. so it's too early to tell i guess that you know it's not like it has hit bestseller lists or anything like that
0: um yes i wasn't talking about it in that particular way i i'm if we go back to this boring discussion of of the door the academic door that is slammed closed on people who think it's a pseudonym i mean because you've talked to them and because you've interviewed them they're going to have this curiosity about it and more and more of them will that little group will read this book and they will in in droves start seeing common sense but whether they see the common sense and whether they publish on the common sense is another matter because as you rightly say they're all terrified of losing their jobs they're all held in by this peer review system which is iniquitous yeah. um,
1: i don't know i mean i look at someone like emma smith who you know a oxford shakespeare scholar um she clearly read the book for the spectators it's clear that she read it she misrepresented it a little bit in some areas but, but did it convince her or did it- apparently not, unless unless
0: um, she's in she, trouble. Yes. It. She, she, I, her review I felt was nauseating to me. Um, I could feel that she had taken in a, a great deal of breath and simply held it there while she both read and wrote <laughs> so that by the time she'd finished her thing, she was full of her own a, a poisonous halitosis that had got into her bloodstream and into her plasma and stuff. And it was un, very <laughs> unattractive and she was trying hard to <laughs> to appear to be sort of uh, cool and neutral, but she was clearly steaming. That was in The Spectator, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. The
0: English Spectator. Um, but we mustn't assume, this is a very par- partisan subject, so we mustn't assume that you've got all bad reviews and then, and then there are people who have, are open-minded on this subject who absolutely loved it. Um, but did you did you find any so-called stratfordians or or pre-committed stratfordians who actually warmed to it and came and said well actually this is the first time i've really seen the point of this discussion
1: uh well i mean i wrote the book in part because of a shakespeare professor at a very prestigious university here who reached out to me um after my atlantic article was published and said yes of course shakespeare could have been a pseudonym or a pen name and we met up um and you know i was debating whether to write the book and he said write it so i was i felt rather encouraged by him actually um so i knew that there were that there was already you know i knew there were voices of doubt within the university
0: has he it, has he come back to you on on the finished product and congratulated you or was he and i noticed you you actually mention him but you don't give his name you protect him his name
1: he's being cowardly you know he didn't want he know. didn't want to be uh identified.
0: Which so, is interesting in itself. But but back to my question, did he did, has he read it and congratulated you on it since, or has he gone quiet? He
1: um he congratulated me on the publication before he had read it, then I haven't heard anything since then. I think <laughs> I, you know, so I'm not sure where his head is. I think he's not he doesn't have a secure position yet, like Jonathan Bate or Stephen Greenblatt. You know, he's still sort of ascending in his career and trying to attain that status so he's I think he feels a little bit insecure in where he stands and he's he doesn't want to do anything that's going to um, jeopardize his own he's very ambitious obviously you know his own career prospects but you know I, I mean I spoke with my old one of my old Princeton professors Shakespeare professors who it's a short a short conversation we have which I relate in the book and he he admitted to me, you know, he said, I looked into it once, the authorship question, because he said, culturally, it matters. And, um, and then he said, oh, well, you know, Occam's razor, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. You know, that, that's a thing. That's the easiest conclusion. That's the that's a, Occam's razor is the philosophical principle people often cite in defense of the traditional attribution. It's
0: absolute bollocks because it is, it, it is. it's and wrong, I, the, the, the Occam's razor insists that you look at the evidence. Once you see the evidence, then take the simplest answer. And the simplest answer, the Occam's razor, is it's a pseudonym, full stop, obvious. You can't not look at the evidence and then shout Occam's razor at people.
1: So, I mean, he, he was clearly, he was so troubled by it. He obviously hadn't seen all of the evidence because he, had, he hadn't read everything that has been written since. But, um, you know, he was so troubled by it. It was clear to me he had sort of been burned, so frustrated. That he had decided just to drop it and walk away, and so his conclusion that Shakespeare was Shakespeare was not really like, uh, it wasn't. It was like a it was like a statement of resignation. He had sort of resigned himself to the problem, and he just wouldn't, you know, he just couldn't touch it. It was it was too infuriating and and difficult for him to try to unravel. Um, you know, then I spoke to a historian who's quoted in the book, Carol Symes, who feels very strongly that Shakespeare professors are, are being unethical is the word she uses in their refusal to examine the evidence and to um, acknowledge the reasons for doubt. Uh, you know, a professor like Stephen Greenblatt, who's one of the most, I guess the most famous Shakespeare professor really in the world and is considered a staunch Stratfordian. Um, was far more open to doubt when I started talking to him than I expected. You know, he said, he said about, you know, we should have humility about all things to do, you know, with the past and that, that when it comes to literary attribution, there's always room for doubt. And he seemed interested in knowing about the other theories insofar as they, you know, could help him understand the plays better. So, so he really, he really actually was, was far more open than I think people, than he has been in the past and that than people may expect him to be. Um, who else have I heard from? I mean, my interview with Marjorie Garber, which ends the book, is I think...
0: That's extraordinary. Awesome. That's yeah. extraordinary. But I don't think we should we reveal what goes on in that because it's it's a really good, it's a wonderful climax to the whole book.
1: I'm so glad you felt that way because I think some people have misunderstood it. Like, and like Emma Smith, she didn't, I mean, she didn't really get it. She says the book ends on a note of indifference because Marjorie Garber says, you know, essentially that she doesn't care who the author was. She's not interested in the author. She's interested in the plays. That's not me saying that that's Marjorie Garber saying that. And I'm the whole point of that section is I'm sort of, holding up for the reader's appraisal, the absurdity of this professor who has dedicated her entire career and life to the study of Shakespeare, saying mm. she's not at all interested in or curious about the origin of these plays. So yeah. Emma Smith sort of missed that. I'm, I'm actually, it's it's a kind of absurd scene. It ends, it, it, it's almost surreal. I was, when I came out of her house, I, I was... I felt like my head was spinning. It was so baffling to me because she's on the one hand a really brilliant scholar, um, you know, and I've admired her work on the plays for a long time. And on the other hand, this just seemed to me so, I mean, it's just, it's just so silly to say you have, you don't really, you don't want to know who wrote these plays, where they came from, the experiences of the author that shaped, you know, the creation of these works. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's. it's, it's,
0: Yes. And that, and that has informed the whole of Marjorie Garber's life. And she's not interested.
1: Right. So. um,
0: Um, It's mind blowing and the, your book is mind blowing and um, we're all mind blown by the people (laughs) you found in it.
2: How can our listeners keep up to date Follow you, Uh, do you have any social media platforms that you could share with us?
1: Oh yes, well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if I should be on Twitter, demonic website. (laughs) (laughs) So you can follow me there, uh, at Eliz Winkler. I'm on Instagram as well. Um, I have a website, journalistwinkler.com, which um, I try to keep updated. So those are my my primary places of communication. Uh,
0: Thank you, Elizabeth very, very much indeed for, for participating in this talk. So I know you've spoken to a lot of people in a lot of places. And I remember many times doing book tours and getting so sick of the sound of my own voice <laughs> going around in circles saying the same thing. So I know we, we come slightly late into this game, but you're as fresh and uh, uh, exciting and riveting as ever. And thank you very, very much for doing this for us.
2: Yes, thank you, Elizabeth. It's
1: been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
0: It's a joy. And I hope we'll have many more podcasts to come. They're called 1740, I think, and I don't know the technicalities, maybe Mordy does, but we've now got it uh, the podcast away from just being on our website it is now going to be available through all the normal yes, systems we're
2: setting up the rss feed which
0: so means what it, it goes be, it on apple and all the different places on
2: all of the um, podcast so the it's apps.
0: very good that it's going to come on with yours and we're going to try and keep them going so if you like these podcasts uh, try and subscribe to them and get 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 involved in them and throw us ideas about who we should be talking to anything we want to make this really go and really lively and It really was today. Thank you, Elizabeth Winkler, for being our guest. Goodbye from me, Alexander Waugh, and goodbye from...
2: Me, Maudie